Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group and hosted by cardiologist and top medical researcher, Dr. Michael Corrin. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Corrin, returning for our next episode of MedEvidence, where we discover the truth behind the data. And again, I have the great pleasure of being with my guest, Dr. Sunil Joshi, who is um, an allergist immunologist, who is also a very well-known person in our community because of his work at the Duval County Medical Society and the foundation. And we do appreciate that work. Thank oh, you thank very much. you. Thank you. Terrific stuff. So he's involved in organized medicine and also involved in clinical research. And so for all these reasons, we have a great connection and we're having this really fabulous discussion about pollen and allergies. And uh, during our last segment, I talked about this uh, theoretical patient who turns out to be me. <laughs> and uh, this was somebody that had no problem with allergies as a teenager. In fact, thought his friends were making up stories about allergies. And then um, during residency, while attending a graduation in, in Massachusetts, developed symptoms for the first time of watery eyes and running nose and, and facial swelling and saying, what the heck is going on here? And not really feeling sick. So we're going to start with that. So now I admitted that this was me. Mm -hmm. And let's go back to my, my 26, 27-year-old self. And I show up in your office. And how do you help me? Well, so, it, you know, number one, if, if those symptoms were just a one-time thing, you know, we could talk about other potential things that triggered it. But if it became a chronic illness for you, then, of course, we're going to start looking into potential causes for your allergy symptoms. And the way we do that is through allergy testing. Mm -hmm. And allergy testing is actually not as difficult as people make it out to be. Um, it's something Sounds very complicated. Uh, it's something we call skin testing. And basically uh -huh. what we do with the skin testing is we take the allergen. So, for instance, the things that are outdoors that you may be allergic to the different tree pollen and the protein that's associated with that tree pollen comes from an extract company and is basically mixed with nothing but salt water okay how, how many allergens are you tasting? So, so for trees, we have about 14 in Northeast Florida that can mm -hmm. cause allergies. They're mm -hmm. very prevalent in this area. Um, and keep in mind that the whole Western panhandle of Florida is nothing but trees, right? Still mm -hmm. really isn't developed. And a lot of that pollen is coming into the Jacksonville oh, wow. area. That's where all the fronts come from and the wind comes that way as well. And, and we're here in Northeast Florida as we speak for those right. of you listening to us from... Uh, outside of our area. That's right. And so we do have pollen from a lot of different parts of the country that come down here. Um, and so we, we'll test for those. And the way we test is that little bit of fluid that's there in the vial is is in, in the vial with a toothpick, basically. It's what we call technically a dermapick, but it looks like a toothpick. Pull out the toothpick. It has some of that fluid attached to it. We drop that on the person's forearm and then use that same toothpick and scratch the skin with it. Mm. We wait for 15 minutes. A positive test is a hive, like a mosquito bite, and a negative test, nothing happens. And that's what we call prick testing for environmental allergies. Very easy. Within 15 minutes, we have an answer um, in terms of whether you're allergic to oak tree pollen or not. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So, okay. So, now again, you obviously didn't do the testing on me back then. Right. But given my story, what would you anticipate finding? Yeah, so in Massachusetts, that time of the year, that was really kind of an isolated incident. I would expect to see, you know, a combination of potentially tree pollen and grass pollen. Mm -hmm. So grass starts to pollinate in the summer. So depending on what kind of season they were having, you can start to expect to see grass pollinating in that June, July time period. And so late May might have been a little crossover there. So um, and if it was an outdoor graduation and you're outside in grass pollen, mm -hmm. you can expect that as well. So I would have expected to see something in that tree grass realm. 
Okay, interesting. Any particular species of trees that you would be suspicious of? Up in the Northeast, you know, birch tree pollen is a very common one that causes allergies up there. They also do have pine trees and oak trees as well, mm -hmm. um, but birch is probably the most common. Does that really matter uh, from a practical standpoint? Well, it matters in the sense that how you treat it. So, of course, there are medications to treat allergies, and they can treat all kinds of allergies, of course, with, with uh, antihistamines and topical nasal sprays. But if you are going to do targeted immunotherapy, Mm -hmm. then we do need to know exactly what you're allergic to because mm -hmm. each of those proteins are different. And so if we're going to get you to the point where you are no longer allergic or significantly less allergic or desensitized, we would need to know if it's birch tree versus oak tree versus pine tree mm -hmm. so that we get the right tree pollen in there in the mix. Makes sense. So talk a little bit more about this desensitization process. Okay, so to be desensitized, basically, and, and so I think there's a misnomer that people think if you're desensitized, you're no longer allergic to something. That's the ultimate goal, okay, to develop tolerance so that you no longer are around oak trees and react to it. Mm -hmm. But the reality is what we're trying to do is minimize your symptoms, improve your mm -hmm. quality of life, and at the same time, decrease your need for medication so that you can be outside, let's say, during the spring pollen season and not suffer. And so what that is, basically, is once we find out what you're allergic to, we could even be your dog or cat or other things in the environment, um, we would start, if you're doing allergy shots, for instance, you'd be introduced with a very small amount of that allergen mixed with salt water. So mm -hmm. it's very natural, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And it starts off with such a low dose, it's almost like you're getting a placebo injection mm -hmm. initially. And each time you come in, you get a little bit more of what you're allergic to until you get up to a dose that's high enough to turn off your allergies, but not so high to cause an allergic reaction. And so if we do that, in, in weekly increments, at least in our practice, it takes about 24 to 25 weeks to get up to your top dose, oh. which is about six months of the year. So there's mm -hmm. a little time commitment. Mm -hmm. Once you get up to your top dose, then you don't come once a week anymore. You ultimately just come once a month for mm -hmm. your shot, and we leave the dose the same. And the goal, of course, is to see how you're doing the next pollen season mm -hmm. and the pollen season after that. It's a five-year course, typically. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not because it takes five years for the patient to feel better, mm -hmm. but it takes five years for us to get as close to tolerance as possible anything more than that doesn't necessarily give you any more chance of tolerance so we typically stop at five years and hopefully at that point and in 85 percent of the patients are able to go forward without shots and still need less medications and Good have less life. quality of life issues at least for the next five to ten years after mm -hmm. these studies don't go on for too long but mm -hmm. we know that for um for an extended period after stopping shots they're able to tolerate that environment so, so getting back to our hypothetical patient yes. um how would you treat me well, I mean, in that particular case, it was a one-time episode, and maybe it, maybe it persisted well, for... We didn't get the whole history, okay. but it, it did happen periodically after that, okay. but for, for very seasonally okay. and, and on very specific circumstances. Okay. So again, uh, always seemed to be in May, okay. and always during you know outdoor events that happen to be in bucolic, grassy places. Okay, got it. So, so this is someone, in your case, you, who is suffering with late spring polynosis or mm -hmm. allergies. And so in this particular case, obviously we'd give you some information about common sense ways to avoid the allergen. You're taking showers when you come home, getting, you know, washing your hair, putting on your pair of clothes, that type of thing. But if we were looking at medications, you know, mm -hmm. which is what most of our patients want is a prevention strategy, is if we know that this is something that's typically going to happen to you in that May, June, July time period, we would want to pre-treat you, preempt your symptoms, get you on a preventative plan, in particular with topical nasal steroid sprays, some are available over the counter, some are prescription, um, that can be used to prevent symptoms before they start. Hmm. The worst thing people do with allergies is they wait till their symptoms begin. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So it's much easier for us to prevent symptoms than it is for us to treat symptoms. It's a great point. It's a very, very important point. It, like in all of medicine, yeah, right? Yeah, in cardiology, yeah, it's much better to prevent heart disease and treat heart disease. Right. And in allergies, the same thing. And you know, once the proverbial cat is out of the bag, that's an allergy term, cat yeah. out of the bag, right? Yes. So <laughs> once the cat is out of the bag, yeah. um, it's very hard to get it back in. Right. And so our goal is always when we're seeing our patients, like, okay, if, if this is clearly a seasonal allergy sufferer, we want to get in front of the story get them controlled so that during the season they have a good quality of life. Mm-hmm. And that's what my plan for you would be is to say, let's do a topical nasal steroid before the season and then have an antihistamine to use as needed kind of as your rescue through that season. And let's see how we do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to reiterate that point about early and preventative treatment because it's so important throughout medicine. Right. And there's a, a Chinese proverb from traditional Chinese medicine that states that a weak physician waits until end stages of disease before physician treats the patient. A good physician treats people in the early stages of disease, but the best physicians treat people before they have the disease. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that's a really key point. Yeah. So one of the crazy theories I had back then, and I love your comments on this, is because I never had any problems whatsoever until I was a medical resident, Mm -hmm. I wondered if there was some exposure that I had during my medical training that led me to develop allergies. And in particular, you know, like anybody else, probably, I'm sure you're in the same situation as a medical student or as an intern or resident, you got pricked by a needle that was in a patient, or mm-hmm. I got exposed to people with various diseases. And, you know, your mind gets to wondering um, if that was what predisposed me to this problem and why I developed it later in life. So I'd be curious about your perspective. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, actually. And it actually gets down to the immunology of how we fight off infections or fight off allergies. And and actually what happens a lot to us in, in residency or in medical schools, we get exposed to communicable diseases, right? Viruses, bacterial diseases, things mm-hmm. of that sort. And what happens is our immune system develops a reaction. So just like when you get a vaccine or you get the flu, your immune system reacts in such a way to protect you mm-hmm. and to protect you from the next time you get infected by that. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's supposed to do, okay? And so theoretically, what would happen is if you're getting exposed to these viruses or other substances, you should actually be less likely to develop allergies because our immune system, as it's developing, has a fork in the road. That fork is to go forward into fighting off viruses and to developing that protective part of our immune system. Or if they're not seeing viruses, okay, like if our society is too clean and we're not (laughs) exposed to viruses or parasites or things, then it doesn't have anything to fight here. So it starts to push more towards the direction in which we fight off things that are ubiquitous in the environment that are normally there, such as dust mites, such as dog allergens, such as oak tree pollen, or even peanut allergen. And so now you're starting to develop more allergies to these proteins that you're getting exposed to because you're not getting exposed to the others. So the hygiene hypothesis states mm-hmm. that if you are getting exposed to viruses at certain times in your life, then you're less likely to develop allergies. That you have allergy symptoms because your nose runs and your Mm -hmm. eyes itch and water, Mm -hmm. but you're pushed away from that allergy um, phenotype. Wow. That is fascinating stuff. So we're going to really dig into that. But one of the things I want to talk about before we dig into that is defining what an eosinophil is and where that particular cell fits into this whole hypothesis. Yeah, so the eosinophil, which, you know, through our training here in the United States is considered the allergy cell, okay? Mm -hmm. 
eosinophils actually through most of the world and through evolution fight off parasitic infections in particular in developing countries we just don't see parasites here but mm -hmm. eosinophils are produced in the bone marrow they come out into the bloodstream and then they get into tissue and here in the westernized world as they get into tissue they release certain mediators inside of the cells that cause scar tissue to form and also bring in other immune cells into the environment which can either help heal a process or destroy the tissue and so it depends on what it's there for for the for it to have its effect so if you fall off your bike and you have a scar tissue and you're and you're open here and you need scar tissue to form and the eosinophils come in there and, and at that point that's doing a good thing it's protecting right. you but if it's coming into your lungs after you got exposed to diesel exhaust fumes or cigarette smoke or an allergen and it puts down scar tissue that's a bad thing hmm. so it really depends on where they're going and what they're doing in terms of their whether they're positive or negative effects. interesting so eosinophils have this interesting way of bringing different specialists together. Right. <laughs> and, right. And so here in our clinical research center, we've done studies in eosinophilic esophagitis. Mm -hmm. As a cardiologist, I've seen, I've seen patients that have eosinophilic heart disease. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, we think that asthma is often driven by eosinophils. So all these different organs are affected by eosinophils. So I really want to explore this hypothesis with you in the next segment and also how docs can work together on these things. Absolutely. Thanks for joining the MedEvidence podcast. To learn more, head over to medevidence.info or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform.